Welcome to This Must Be The Place, the show that reveals the unique physical, cultural, and emotional layers of places. Last week, we had Chris Olson on the show. Chris is a digital technology consultant and a Seattle native, and we spent time discussing Seattle specifically, how it is growing and changing over time. During that conversation, he mentioned in passing that Mexico City was a particular place that inspired him and engaged him, so much so that he's considering potentially moving there. Given that, it piqued my interest, and I asked him to come back to discuss that. So, Chris, thank you for coming back, and you mentioned Mexico City in our previous conversation, and I asked you to come back because some of the listeners may or may not know I actually grew up in Mexico City from age two to roughly 19 before I moved to the United States and went to college and ping-pong my way up Dallas, Texas, Syracuse, New York, Philadelphia, and now in Seattle. So Mexico City is in my blood. It's part of my cultural fabric. I often swear in Spanish. I play soccer two or three times a week and, and talk to folks in Spanish. So it's it's essential to who I am. That said... I haven't been to Mexico City in a very long time, even though my mother spends half her time in the U.S. and half her time in the Mexico City area. I have, in some senses, lost touch uh, with Mexico City. So I know you have visited recently, and you've probably visited more than once. And as you mentioned in the in our last conversation, you're even considering moving there. So I'm happy to hear an external perspective of what Mexico City looks like now and talk about it from a cultural perspective and what it used to be and what it is now. So I'm so happy you're back to talk about this. Thank you, Eric. I'm glad to come back and talk about one of my favorite places. I have been there three times in the last two years thinking about going again in a couple months. So um, it seems to be in the blood. I just can't shake it. And it's some, a place that I think about continually. And as you said, have given serious consideration to figuring out a way to um, at least base my life there part-time, if not full-time in the, in the next coming years. Mm-hmm. So even before you went to Mexico City, what drew you there? What were some of the thoughts and considerations when you were thinking to yourself that said, yeah, let me let me throw the dart specifically at Mexico City and, and go take a look? Well, that is a misperception on your part. I didn't want to go to Mexico City. I was actually scared to go to Mexico City. I did not have it on my list of places to go, you know, even in the top 10. I have a dear friend who is a production manager for Pearl Jam, and they were on tour, and she called me up and said, they're going to end their tour Thanksgiving in Mexico City. Do you want to come? Now, an opportunity to travel, I will never say no. I did. And then we kind of hemmed and hawed on it. And about 48 hours later said, yep, we'll meet you there. (laughs) So I went with trepidation and it was mainly just to go to the show, see my friend and have Thanksgiving together. That trip revolutionized my perception of Mexico and my experience there was incredible. My overriding initial reaction to going to Mexico City was anger, and I was so pissed that I had waited as long as I had to even consider it or go, and even more so anger at my consumption and buying into a media narrative that Mexico City was some dystopian, awful, horrible place when it is the complete opposite the magical time that we had that first time has been replicated in different ways over and over again when I've been there and uh, not repeating experience, but repeating the sensation of just being overwhelmingly joyful 
and happy and surprised by how truly special that place is. Well, tell us a little bit about that, that first visit, that first touch and that first experience. What were those elements that caused that 180 degree turn in you? Going with trepidation, landing, getting into the city and then just kind of, I'm someone who's very visual. So just the taxi ride in from the airport into the neighborhood where we were staying was just incredible. And just the amount of actual eye candy to consume on that trip. And you're on a freeway and you're kind of dodging in and out of neighborhoods. And that was in huge amount of traffic. That was incredible. Staying at a beautiful bed and breakfast in a gorgeous neighborhood, the Condesa neighborhood, which is um, Mexico City is a city of neighborhoods. It's completely different from many other neighborhoods in that city. But just getting to that bed and breakfast and then walking that first evening in that neighborhood and just seeing the beautiful art deco buildings and the, uh, the restaurants and the, the street life, the culture there. And then staying at this beautiful hotel where I actually am kind of remiss to say the name because I don't want other people to compete with bookings for it. <laughs> Good, because I would have put it on my site and given the millions of people who visit, they'll find out. Red, It's called Red Treehouse. It's great. You do have to book in advance. We've done Airbnb since we've been back now, and that's always been a great experience. And then just being challenged to go and do different things. And so like... Uh, do you want to go to Lucha? Yes, let's go to a Lucha match. Okay, getting in a cab and going to Arena Mexico and having my mind incredibly blown by you know watching these luchadores and uh, you know it's over the top and comical and serious and all of that. Walking into the Zocalo, the main square in um, Mexico City, and visiting the Presidential Palace and seeing these beautiful Diego Rivera murals celebrating the triumph of the worker and socialism and communism, which would not exist in any other presidential palace in the world, I don't think. And then you walk out and juxtaposed there is the 15th century Spanish cathedral built on top of Aztec ruins that you see. You know, it just blew me away. Mm -hmm. Which is actually a very common strategy that happened in Mexico where the the Spanish conquistadores and the religious order would build cathedrals and, and Catholic religious iconography on top of the ancient Aztec, Olmec, Mayan, what have you, religious center so that the population would go to those shrines and, and be more easily converted. In fact, the whole uh, notion of the Virgin of Guadalupe, people might not know this, was constructed as a conversion tactic. The story is that an indigenous boy goes up into the mountains and sees the Virgin of Guadalupe, and the Virgin of Guadalupe is brown-skinned and has the, the physical characteristics of the indigenous people. Mm -hmm. So it's a, you can probably, given my atheistic background, know that I'm gonna write, it was a very great propaganda movement that the, the Catholic Spanish order did in Mexico in order to do that, but I digress. Well, one of the uh, most touching experiences, like physically and emotionally moving experiences was at the Guadalupe Shrine, the, the Basilica de Guadalupe. Yeah, Basilica de Guadalupe. We went on our way to the uh, Teotihuacan, the pyramids outside of the city. It was supposed to be kind of a short stop, and I was emotionally, and I'm not a religious person, but spiritually touched in that place. And it was really moving in that huge plaza, and you'd see people who had like crawled on their hands and knees from Mexico City up into the basilica, and families were there with their children being baptized. And we walked by uh, a family who had a deceased child that was being baptized, a deceased mm. baby. And that, I mean, you know, 
And then there's these indigenous uh, dancers, you know, dancing uh, dances and just so devotional and so special. And you could just tell that whatever religious overlay was on that, it was culturally significant in a way that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as an American, you don't see. And that that is true. They, they not only come from Mexico City, they actually spend hundreds of miles from from areas all over the country to go to that place. But that's an interesting transition point that I wanted to bring up, um, thinking about your experience there. And this might be a bit of pop cultural and psychological interpretation on my part, but but it mirrors the experience I've had growing up in Mexico and comparing it to, to my time in the United States. With the friends I have and the acquaintances I have in the United States, there's always an undercurrent of um, what I will call meta-awareness or irony running through my acquaintances. We, we need to be very smart about the moment we're in, very knowing about the culture we're in, and we want to tell each other that that we have this level of intelligence about our surroundings. And growing up in Mexico, there is very little level of irony. There's more experiential knowing, and there's more being in touch in the moment that you're in and openness and not worrying about how you will be perceived if you're enjoying a certain moment, whether it's the the gaudiness of a lucha libre Mm -hmm. moment. There's just an openness. There are people yelling in the middle of a mariachi song. There's just a general openness and a lack of caution about how to be in public that I really uh, appreciate in Mexico. That That is very counter to who I, who I am. I'm a bit reserved, but there's a certain disarming openness in the country that I think is characteristic. I don't know if you found that. I think you really touched on it, and uh, maybe that's something that I hadn't been able to define before, but it is completely non-ironic. You know, one of the joys of travel is experiencing the way that different cultures present themselves and immersing yourself kind of in that experience and, um, you know, being in a non-ironic culture and taking things at face value and enjoying and being present in the moment is something that really activated my love for Mexico City. And it really is special. You know, I think one of my strategies around travel, not only to Mexico City, but to other places I go, is to plant yourself and try, you know, if you're there for a week or two weeks or however long you have, to really be a part of a neighborhood. Strategically for me, you know, you're in a new city every two day tour thing just does not resonate. I like to be somewhere for a while and I want to go into the coffee shop and have the person recognize me or go to the laundromat a few times and have them recognize you. And, you know, that for me is, you know, building um, kind of that cultural equity. Mm-hmm. The amount of familial interaction that you see in Mexico City I don't know what the word is for it, but just being in the moment and present and enjoying like a really good taco at a street vendor or being at the Basilica and, you know, being really devotional in your worship of what's happening. For me personally, it was it's really a nice relief and a nice break from the culture that I inhabit, you know, on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. And the, the somewhat stereotypical view of when Mexicans are near a mariachi band or a ranchera band and they're yelping and yelling, that happens, folks, without alcohol. The alcohol <laughs> yeah. amplifies them and maybe makes the yelps even better. But that's something that struck me as well. Even when I was young, I couldn't do that. I felt a little self-conscious about that. Mm-hmm. And I, but they do it with, with complete disarming openness and frankness. There's no irony or or playing a role. It's just enjoying the moment, enjoying their culture, enjoying the music, which I still can't do that. I don't know if I ever will. <laughs> so I'm still trying to unpack what was that that crystallizing moment that 
that did that 180. I mean, you went to that Pearl Jam concert. How much time did you spend there, and what did you see, and what were those those experiences that made you think I got to come back? Well, we were there over Thanksgiving, so it was a long holiday weekend. I think for me, a little cliche, but the actual concert itself just set my heart on fire for Mexico. There is no rock audience anywhere else in the world like a Mexican rock audience, and seeing Pearl Jam perform, which I've seen many times, they're a wonderful live band and very dynamic. And then just seeing the appreciation in that stadium for them being there. And the participation was, I mean, the hair on the back of my neck is standing up right now, just thinking about that moment again. Everyone in the stadium was flicking their lighters in time with the music, and it was like waves of light going up through the stadium. And then um, at the end, um, one of the finale songs, they were X had opened, and X came out with Pearl Jam, and they played "Rockin' in the Free World," the Neil Young song, and. Everybody in the audience took their giant beer cups and were smashing them and flinging them in the air and <laughs> jumping up and down. And I just like lost it. I started crying. It was like, you know, American audiences don't do that. You know, they're very self-centered and self-conscious. And even if you're kind of in the moment, but it just the uh, the abandonment and the joy that was present. I I. Yeah, this is very risky of me to say, but I always have a perception in a lot of U.S. rock shows that when people are in it or they're expressing themselves, they're expressing themselves not necessarily to to a hundred percent express the joy of the music in the moment, but to project to others around them that they are part of the scene or that they know yeah. the song. Yeah, it's a performance for others around them. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Mexico, more often than not, in the other direction. It is a Dionysiac losing oneself in the moment, and yeah, the yeah. The, the objects go flying. Um, you throw your arms in the air, and you see this heaving mass of just syncopated joy with mm-hmm. the music. I, I will link in in the article that accompanies this podcast maybe a, a video of the Pearl Jam in Mexico because I have seen those on YouTube, mm-hmm. and it is characteristic of my experiences of music shows there. And I know you don't like this guy, but I'm going to also link Peter Hook in the Light performing. <laughs> In Mexico, because they have a camera behind Peter Hook showing the audience as he's performing a classic Joy Division or New Order song. It's a similar experience. There's, there's something about the non-ironic enjoyment of life there, which is unique. I might like Peter Hook if I saw him in Mexico City. <laughs> yeah, with people around you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, so that w- that really just was just so joyful. And then just the whole rest of the trip and, you know, touring the city feeling incredibly safe, experiencing amazing food, wandering kind of through different neighborhoods and and looking at different things. And then just the way that that city functions is so amazing. You know, it is completely, again, opposite against a dystopian, ruinous city image that we as, uh, you know, Americans have, have taken with us. And so, you know, just kind of seeing that, you know, really made me want to go back. Yeah, it really is a, a patchwork of distinct neighborhoods that have grown over hundreds of years um, from Aztec through Spanish colonialism, through revolutionary wars, through 20th century industrialism to what it is now. And all these neighborhoods, I'm not going to say each neighborhood represents a different aspect historically. It's just sediments and layers of all of those things at once in these neighborhoods. Transportation network, it's not a grid. 
it's not necessarily a, a logical geometric shape, but it functions. It's like an organism and all the capillaries running through the tissues yeah, that are these neighborhoods. Exactly. Really something amazing. I really like the visibility of the layers of history. Um, last time we were there, the um, Jumex, the brand new you know art museum went up. Um, and you see all these beautiful modern buildings, but then, you know, in neighborhoods and other parts of the city, you start to see those actual layers. And it's not like things get stripped away when something new is built. And going back to what you were saying about the colonial times, it's just built on top. And you kind of have like these whole stratas of different experiences, just even in a city block. And what are some of the the neighborhoods you visited and what were memorable experiences in some of them? If people are thinking, okay, uh, where should I deplane and land in Mexico City, move around? What are, the, what I, are those? I um, have stayed in Condesa the, the three times that I've been there. Condesa, I think, is atypical of much of the rest of Mexico City, but it's a kind of a comfortable transition for an American going. It is beautiful Art Deco architecture walkable park-like streets. You know, I was also, that was another surprising thing was just the amount of greenery that was in the city itself. And then lots of artistic, interesting galleries, restaurants, um, kind of a bo very bohemian vibe. And so that's a been a comfortable city neighborhood to base out of and um, great to come back to at night and, you know, have a great little bar to stop off at or a, a taco place to, you know, kind of pick up some late night eats before you go home. Coyacan, which is south of the city, is fantastic. I think the next time we go, we'll uh, stay in Coyacan. A little more rom remote, probably, to get in and out of the city. But the colonial spirit in that neighborhood, juxtaposed with the modernist sensibility that has kind of grown up over time, is really interesting. And then also just the history there around Diego and uh, Frida, uh, Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera and the Trotskys who live next door and all of that kind of recent history is is really present in that neighborhood and uh, interesting. Yeah, Coyoacan used to be one of my regular haunts because my mom had a, a long-term boyfriend who had a old colonial home in that neighborhood, still cobblestoned. And as you said, you move from Spanish colonialism to early 20th century uh, Trotskyism and revolutionary fervor in the Frida Kahlo house. And if you visit that, you not only get a, a look at her art, you also get uh, undertones and overtones of the relationship between a very domineering masculine force against a very powerful feminine force in that home and the put into that mix a, a communist Trotskyite <laughs> moving around that mix. And it, it really is a fascinating home, not just for, for a peak at a lifestyle, but a peak at a, at a cultural moment, not just in Mexico, but in the world as well. You know, the interesting thing for me about Coyacan, and I'm always curious, is it you walk down these big cobblestone streets and uh, the houses are always closed, to this, private to the street. You know, it's a gate, a wall. Sometimes you'll see people like walking through the door and you kind of peek and you look and you see these gardens and these beautiful homes behind it. And I just want to go up to every door and kind of knock on it and say, can I come just look at your house? And um, But the Diego and Frida house kind of gives you that sense of kind of what the interior spaces of those homes are like. And the last time we were there, they had an exhi exhibition of her clothing. And um, that was really powerful to kind of see because you you hear kind of the legend of like the physical abnormalities around her and what she overcame. But um, seeing how she constructed herself 
to present in the world was really cool. Yeah, propped herself up literally because her yeah. her spine was injured in a bus accident that I think impaled her with the the driver shift of the bus. Yeah, really yeah. dramatic story. Any other neighborhoods you want to mention? I have one that I'll mention if you don't. Um, well, Zokolo, the center of the city, we spend a lot of time at it. Again, super tourist and probably something that's not very authentic. But when you go there. You go to the presidential palace, you see the Rivera murals, you can go to the Templo Mayar Museum and see the Aztec ruins, and then the, the basilica, the cathedral that's right there is spectacular. But if you go just, I think, to the left of the basilica, there's kind of a row of shops. You go in the interior of those, and they'll have touts, people with like menus, and they'll take you up to the top, and there's all these bars right on the top of those buildings with open-air seating looking into the Zocalo. And the last time I was there, we spent, gosh, three hours kind of sitting like right at the front. And you look down at the Zocalo and there were all these sorts of protests going on and mm -hmm. people marching and watching the march around the square and the police kind of come from one street and move them to another side. And uh, just watching the, the actual square and the square itself is just physically immense. I would like to go during some sort of national event. You know, I've never been there when it's actually been being used for something, but it, it looks spectacular. Yeah, that would be the night of the 15th of September into the 16th of September when the president goes up in the balcony and gives a traditional El Grito, the yell mm -hmm. of independence, which commemorates the the time when, when we raised our fist and said, let's fight the Spanish. That's, you know, tens if not hundreds of thousands of people in that plaza looking up at the president. Well, maybe not this particular president who's not very popular right now, but hmm. but in general, that would be it. Another thing that strikes me about the Socalo and Centro neighborhood, if you walk out of the Socalo area and look at the streets that surround it for maybe you know a 10 block radius all around, there are a lot of old colonial buildings with beautiful um, azulejos, they're called. Um, the tiles. The tiles, thank yeah. you. So you could go to a real old school place to have churros and chocolate mm -hmm. or to have traditional old school Mexican food and interiors that haven't changed for maybe 200, 300 years. And they're, they feel decrepit. They feel a little like they might collapse at any moment, but they are refurbished and everything's fine. So you could lose yourself for a day or two just in the neighborhood surrounding the, the big plaza. Any of the neighborhoods that I mentioned, you could spend days just wandering and give, uh, giving yourself time to walk out of the Zocalo or around the uh, concentric kind of park circles in Condesa or through the streets of Coyacan. And you just, if you give yourself those wandering experiences, you find kind of these little Treasures. I would say the um, other neighborhood that it's not really a neighborhood, but Chapultepec Park is spectacular. And then I'm going to forget the neighborhood name, but the last time I was there walking out of the Zocalo, we just kept walking east and we ended up in a market neighborhood, which I don't think is very touristed at all and had incredible food at this um, street market. It was huge. Just mm -hmm. Vendor after vendor after vendor. It and doesn't occur to me, but we'll look it up later and link it in the article that, yeah. that accompanies this podcast. But it was it was great. It was just rows of street vendors, you know, coming out of the Zocalo, and you just kept walking and and seeing all this wonderful yeah. stuff. They're very uh, famous photos of Mexico City that are taken from a bird's eye view or a drone's eye view, if you want. And what you notice is, if you look at the lattice work of all the streets, some of these streets will suddenly be orange. There'll be a line of orange that follows a, a, one of these veins, one of mm -hmm. these streets. And that's basically a market that pops up organically in the middle of the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever the day is. And then all these stalls just cover 
take over the street, yep. cover it with these orange tarps. And any day of the week, do a aerial shot of Mexico City. It wouldn't surprise me if you go to Google Maps and just look around and you'll see this orange coverage yep. that just that emerges. Another neighborhood I want to mention because I think it's indicative of the good, the bad, and the ugly that is happening in Mexico City is called Polanco, which is where I used to live in the 80s. And it's the traditional Jewish neighborhood of the city. And back in the 80s, it was quiet. It was residential. There were a few shops there and maybe a few attorneys' offices and, and restaurants. But in the past 20, 30 years, it has become the equivalent of Rodeo Drive, the Miracle Mile in Chicago. It has become glitzy. It has become Louis Vuitton and Tiffany. Just a, an amazing, amazing evidence of how globalization can take a, a specific neighborhood and shift it. So if you're ever in Mexico City, go to Polanco, not because it's the place to be or the shopping to be, but Take a look at the sediments of how a, a traditional Jewish neighborhood turned over the years into this uh, neighborhood that you basically can't differentiate from Chicago, L.A., and other places like that. I was in that neighborhood um, the last time I was there, too, and it, it felt like Beverly Hills. It was not compelling to me. You know, I can go to Zara here if I want to, Orange, uh, Chanel. Um, what was interesting, though, was... Um, the concentration of wealth, and then noticing uh, around rush hour that many of the the condo buildings, the big, tall buildings, uh, have rooftop landing pads, and you would see people, uh, you'd see helicopters landing and then dropping people off and then taking off. And so I think um, many of the oligarchs or wealthy people who live in that neighborhood commute by helicopter rather than you know touching ground with. The common yeah. people. When we lived there, it was my mom and I, a single mother and her kid, you know, expatriates that could somehow make a make it their way mm -hmm. <laughs> Polanco now it's it's just tremendously different which is you know a typical story in many different cities what are some of the other strong memories you have of your time there and, and I'm not talking about specific neighborhoods or events but think about your senses um, smells visual or emotional tones so if Proust said that he experienced tons of childhood memories when he bit into a, a sweet Madeleine, what would be the equivalent for you when you think about Mexico City and a sensory overload memory? Visually, the city is just incredible. There is um, always something incredibly interesting to look at. Architecturally speaking, just street life, just what's going on in the city. And so that is overwhelming. I mean, for me, just wandering and walking, I have to remind myself to actually maybe watch where I'm going sometimes because I'm distracted by what I'm looking at. I think the amount of culinary delights in that city and just eating things that are beyond any reference of Mexican food you'd have in the States. Even if you're going to someplace, you know, owned by a Mexican family here, what you're experiencing at the street level or in a restaurant in Mexico City is just incredible. And I think one of the sensory overload things that I just, I am craving it right now is a, a restaurant called Contramar, which is north of Condesa. And they have these tuna tostones appetizers that they give you. And biting into that for the first time was just mind blowing. It was just the most incredible tuna, the tostone, the whole um, experience itself. And the attitude in Mexico high, medium, or low is just, there's no time for bad food. You know, people don't have time to make bad food that's always like incredibly well done and, and served with love, you know, wherever you're getting it. 
Yeah, there was a 15 to 20 minute documentary that I recall that was part of, I think, the Munchies site, which is part of the Vice Network, that um, covered the, the chef who owns Contramar and follows her her life uh, preparing dinner and then having an after party after her dinner. I'll link it in this article for those who want to take a look at Contramar and, and what, what it's like actually to have a, a good social moment in Mexico and, and the kind of non-ironic approach to living that, that we've been talking about. How about people or specific groups you interacted with during this time? You mentioned, you know, the concert experience and just watching masses of people joyfully experiencing that. What what types of people did you cross paths with and interact with and what impressions did they leave with you? Completely open and, um, you know, welcoming in general across the board. I've had many different experiences with different people. I have a friend who's American who lives there now who I see when I'm down there. He owns a bookstore and for many years lived in Seattle but lives there now. I've met people through him. His bookstore is in the American Legion in uh, Condesa, which in and of itself is a unique and interesting place. The first time we were there, he took us, after the Pearl Jam show, he took us to a pulqueria on Insurgentes, which is one of the big main streets. And uh, there was a Norteño DJ playing. And just interacting with these, I probably had too much pulque, which is dangerous, mm -hmm. but interacting with these guys who just were like immediately, uh, you know, your new uh, BFF. And they were telling you all about which neighborhood you needed to go to and where you what you wanted to uh, see and just, uh, you know, the openness and friendliness. Um, last time I was there, I met these guys who uh, do um, advertising and uh, video production for some major companies and follow them on uh, their Instagram now. And we kind of connect through that. Again, you know, people who are very high powered and uh, have a lot going on in their career, but still like just had that immediate connection over food and, and talking about our careers and what they were doing and what I was doing and that immediacy and that warmness and that openness and sharing was really great. Mm -hmm. At the risk of going into uh, pop sociology, I think there's a movement historically in Mexico. The indigenous population might have been that way, but because of colonial influence and because of the presence of the United States and its, its strong economic, social, and political influence, I think there is an undercurrent of the level of openness that people have and interact with each other, the level of non-ironic acceptance, the level of frank conversation is a type of expression of national character and rebellion against globalization, against status seeking that is often associated with a colonial push into the country or if you will, an imperialist capitalist push from globalization. So, I don't think I'm the only one that have, would have this thought, but I think uh, that kind of openness is a type of rebellion and a type of uh, con conserving of what is uniquely Mexican against those forces. Uh, I would, I would agree. I think that you know the younger people that I've interacted with in uh, Mexico City, and in particular, and some of the older people that I've had conversations with, whether it's been brought up explicitly or um, just you know kind of implicitly. It's always a reaction and a pride in their national culture and a reaction to and against just naturally, I think, against kind of the aggression of a global culture. And while you do see, you know, Starbucks and McDonald's and other things in Mexico City, they're not as omnipresent as they are in an American city. And there's much more focus on the local homemade. And I'm not speaking about like homemade from a home kitchen, but like what's indigenous to 
to uh, to Mexico. So you know, I think um, even if you're going at like a level of uh, people shopping at Sanborns, which is a Mexican chain, rather than shopping at Walmart, that kind of pride, national pride. And what's amazing to me, and thinking about going to Mexico City and and spending time in Mexico, is how they have maintained such a distinct and unique cultural presence in the 20th and 21st century with a giant neighbor, a giant footprint right to their north. And you think about, what's the word, hegemony, Mm -hmm. that uh, the United States kind of exerts globally. Mm -hmm. And you go to Mexico, and while, yes, there's some of that global presence, a globalist corporate presence there, you don't feel like you're in America. Like you do, uh, you know, sometimes in uh, Costa Rica, you know, I've been to Costa Rica, you feel much more like um, you could be in, like, Florida or California. When you go to Mexico, it is still a very unique and... um, and I think it's conscious. I can tell you from my experience since I, I was age 2 to 18, I went through K through 12. Mm-hmm. Uh, the education system, uh, the programming of what courses you take, what books you read, what points of view you have is pretty, depending on your point of view, balanced or leans toward that understanding of anti-imperialism, anti-globalization, and challenging capitalist tropes. For instance, one of the books I had to read in the 80s in my social sciences course was called Distant Neighbors, which is basically a study of the relationship between Mexico and the United States and and challenging the view that capitalism and democracy branded uh, United States influence was necessarily a good thing. So that was part of the curriculum when I was growing up. Another thing that strikes me is at least once a week for 30 minutes, there used to be a a program that allowed one of the 12 political parties at the time to have 30 minutes of free airtime mm. to tell their story. So the Agrarian Party had their story, their Communist Party, the Socialist Party, the Laborers Party, mm-hmm. the Northern Agrarian Party, you name it, they had 30 minutes free airtime. Now, this sounds a bit wonderful, but let's be frank, at the time there was one party that ruled and ruled with corruption, but there was this openness to different voices There was an openness in the education to challenge traditional economic systems that seem to be wonderful from across the border. And there's still that, of course, with the the latest election where there was that silliness about building a wall. And I guess it's not silly because, you know, we we elected that dude. Um, There was a, a reaction in Mexico, which I found quite appropriate, which said, sure, let's build it. And then here are the plans for that wall. And the plans actually have the wall extending to grab Texas, Colorado, Nevada, Arizona, California. So all the territory that the U.S. took from Mexico is now walled into Mexico. So if you want to build a wall, let's build a wall where it should be. So there's still that, uh, even though it's close allies, the closest of neighbors, there is still that resistance that is very important and it's part of the national identity. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I had an interesting conversation on the way to the airport the last time we were there, and it was um, well before Donald Trump was the uh, Republican nominee, but he had been making a lot of noise. And uh, the driver said, you know, is he serious? Is he really going to build a wall? And I said, well, he's a buffoon, but um, sure, you know, I think he's serious about that. And he said, well, actually, maybe we should build that wall and keep you guys out. And I said, well, if only if I can move and help. So I think that sentiment is present there, yeah. And I think it would be remiss of us to to note, I mean, I'm familiar with the city and it's a huge city. And a lot of the neighborhoods you mentioned are, are great and lovely, but there are, I should say, some neighborhoods which are 
poor, dangerous, and border on the dystopian that are part of the fabric of you know a major city that has tens of millions of people living in that area. Um, I haven't seen those neighborhoods in 20 years since I've been there. I don't know how they're doing, but I, I will link to the article, a, a photo essay, which shows in, in very glaring stark colors how a, a very rich developed neighborhood juts against a neighborhood that is completely decrepit and they both live side to side literally one wall jutting the other wall so of course there are there are still those social problems economic problems that that are there and if you bumped into that or, or you think your your route was through the the more scenic if you will well i or, i think um you know the last uh uh time time i was there and we talked about wandering into that market it was probably a neighborhood that um you know most tourist guides would have said don't go i have personally never felt threatened in Mexico city. You know, I'm a, I'm a very aware of my personal surroundings when I'm traveling. I don't have a lot of experience in neighborhoods outside of Condesa and Roma Norte and the Zocalo and Coyacan. Uh, so I don't have that experience, but I have gone to other areas of the city and done things like gotten on the subway and gone out to Florida soul where the Pearl jam concert was. I've actually been to two Pearl jam concerts in Mexico now and you are, you know, you empty out into kind of a, a remote, very working class neighborhood. And I've never um, felt anything that was very threatening or alarming. You know, you just, uh, mostly at that time, it's like, well, the subway's closed now. How am I going to get home? So uh, how am I going to get a cab? In our previous conversation, we were talking about Seattle and I was saying like, you know, all of the kind of working class and rough edges are being sanded off of Seattle. Um, what I find fascinating and refreshing about Mexico City is that, like you just said, that is all jumbled together and living side by side. And you walk through these neighborhoods with these beautiful, I'm sure very expensive homes and right outside is some woman with a taco stand who's been selling tacos on that street corner or um, molete or whatever she's selling for years, or you are walking on Sundays in Condesa and all these artisans on the interior parkway where you're walking on these beautiful tree-lined avenues have set up their craftsman shops where they're selling their brooms and their furniture that they made and all these other things. Or you... Um, you know, you are cheek to jowl on the subway with a, a bunch of uh, people. From what I've observed, for the most part, most um, Mexican society just kind of rubs up against each other and it's all kind of thrown together in this giant mix. Mm -hmm. This raises one of my, uh, one of those memories that I asked you about earlier that just came to me in a rush. I, re I think it was either Saturday or Sunday morning, you would hear in the distance a high-pitched steam whistle blow and you would know that somebody on a bicycle holding three or four vats of steaming camotes is mm. coming a camote is like a sweet potato or a mm -hmm. yam so they would put all the sweet potatoes and yams in these steaming pots and steam them and bike around the neighborhoods and the steam would produce enough steam so that they would have like a locomotive whistle associated with it so you would know hear that steam coming and somebody would yell camotes and everybody would come down to the street to pick up their steam the yams who knew did they have the um the basically the junk men who drove around in trucks throughout the neighborhoods and it's this 
chanting lilting song and it's like washing machines microwaves and it's like uh lavadores micro you know yeah. and they're like lavadores microondas yeah it was almost like an ice cream truck but for knickknacks and, yeah for knickknacks and yeah. so bring down your old stuff i had for you know the many times that i was there i had no idea what it was and the last time i kind of listened and i realized oh they're asking for like refrigerators and washing machines and then i saw someone bring some down and i was asking someone about it and they said it's an old recording like 30 or 40 years old of a 14 year old girl singing the song yeah. and they've tracked her down recently and i uh, i should try and find that too and asked her you know what she was doing with her life but you <laughs> yeah. hear that throughout mexico city all the time yeah it's a cacophony of that they're knife sharpeners that that yeah. go around in bicycles with their you know whetstone or whatever have you, they pump the bicycle and cause yep. enough friction in order to sharpen knives yeah. just ambulatory services all over the place that add to the soundtrack Let's ask you to project yourself since since you're seriously considering Mexico City as a, a potential residential option, whether part-time or full-time. If you were there, what would a perfect Saturday morning look like when you lived in Mexico City? Mm. Well, I'm imagining living in either Condesa or Coyacan, and I'm getting up and I'm walking out of my house and maybe I'm very idealistic, but the weather in Mexico city for me is perfect. It's always very temperate and crisp and, uh, you know, walking a few blocks, I'm getting, uh, some really good coffee at one of a few coffee shops that I'm thinking about sitting down, reading a magazine or newspaper. And then after the coffee settles, probably going another few blocks and having a really good plate of chilaquiles and, uh, finishing that newspaper. And then, um, Going back home, probably picking up my bike and biking uh, to out to Chapultepec Park or some other destination in the city, and um, and uh, you know really enjoying the city that way and just making some stops along the way. If uh, guests were in town, I think we'd probably be going down to Xochimilco for the day and uh, getting a boat and hanging out at Xochimilco. What I'm gonna do with the article associated with this podcast is do uh, some kind of pictorial representation of that idyllic day you have described so people can visualize what that might be. Uh, maybe we'll talk later what specific place you want, but maybe I'll, I'll edit it and find it myself. So this has been great. What is it about Mexico City that you would say is different from any other city destination you have visited? If somebody asked you, you know, name one or two or three main properties that define Mexico City in your experience, what would those be? That's tough. It's hard to um, to verbalize, but I would say the exuberance and unironic culture, just the pride and exuberance around the Mexican culture is great. The immediacy of history of all types, you know, from ancient to colonial to modern um, and just the accessibility of that and the fact that it's all kind of mixed together and present is amazing. The food. I mean, the food in Mexico City is beyond description. Just the the amount and the variety and the uh, the love and, and uh, care with which it's prepared. You know, they say every culture tends to have one or two dominant flavors associated with their palate. So Korean, if you think of kimchi, it's salty and, and spicy. I think Mexico has that earthy 
savory mm-hmm. thing just yeah. down pat. Down right. pat. The masa, the t- you know, the tortilla. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So as someone who has lived in Mexico for two decades and has intermittently gone back, I haven't gone back in a long time, this was a great conversation for me to hear because some of the the things that I love about Mexico seem, seems to persist and it's part of the essence of that place. And, I, and I've heard new things about your experience there that, that makes me want to go back to, to my really original homeland and visit again. So thank you so much for sharing your experience of Mexico City and may you get to live there as soon as humanly possible. Thank you, Eric. I've enjoyed it and uh, come visit once we live there. That's great. I'll have two places to visit. Exactly. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share, like, or leave comments about this podcast since all this activity helps us get noticed and grow. I would also love it if you visited thismustbetheplace.io where our podcasts, videos, and written content live. And of course, you can always subscribe and receive the latest greatest episode on your favorite app and device. Since it is the holidays, it is likely that there will be a delay in the next podcast episode. I expect the next episode to come out in about two weeks rather than the usual one week. Until the next time, this must be the place. (laughs) ¶¶